We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. A reading from Matthew 28. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can take your seats. Let's take just a moment to pray together. Father, thank you that uh, you are a God who has not remained silent. You've not kept us guessing uh, who you are and what you're like, but you have given us your son and you've given us your word. And we pray that you would help us now to see you more clearly in all of your beauty and your power and your splendor. Would you help us to see that no matter how we come into the room, this room this morning? Some of us come convinced of the things we've been reading and singing. Some of us come utterly unconvinced. Some of us come having once believed, trying to figure out if we could believe again. Some of us are sitting in a Christian worship service for the very first time. And this, all of it, it is so unfamiliar and so strange. God, we are all over the place. We are all over the spiritual spectrum in terms of belief, but we are all in the same place in terms of our need for you. Our brokenness. Just how fractured we are as human beings how out of control we are of our own lives. And so, God, we need you to come and speak to us in ways that only you can do. You alone have the words of life. So come and speak, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning. 
Uh, my name is Brent. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is so good to be back with you. Last week, I watched the service from my couch because I had COVID, and it sort of kind of triggered me because it, uh, when we're, during the pandemic, we actually recorded our services in this room on Saturdays, which meant that on Sunday mornings, I was doing the same thing you were doing, which was watching the service from my couch. I did this for 58 weeks, and almost every week, it took about 60 seconds into the sermon before one of my kids was saying, this is boring, can we please leave? And it was terrible for my mental health, so I'm glad those days are over, and I'm glad we're all together, and uh, I'm very grateful to uh, Pastor Lance Lewis, who was here last week. If you were here last week, or watching on the live stream, what an incredible uh, message on God's love for Oakland, something we talk about all the time. Um, So I'm very grateful to him. We are starting a new series this morning, uh, and the series is called Encountering the Risen Jesus. And so as the passage was read, you might have been thinking, this kind of sounds like an Easter passage. Uh, That was two weeks ago. What are we doing reading an Easter passage? Well, here's the deal. Easter is a historical fact. The resurrection is a historical fact. We talked about this two weeks ago, that there are very good reasons to believe the resurrection happened. But the resurrection is more than just a historical fact. Uh, Elon Musk bought Twitter this week. That's a fact. Did that change your life? If that changed your life, you were too deep into Twitter, okay? <laughs> uh, people have walked on the moon. Has that, that's a historical fact. Has that changed your life? No. The resurrection, it is a fact, but it is a fact that once you believe it, once you believe it, it begins to change your life. Or let me put it this way. The resurrection is not just meant to be believed. It is meant to be lived. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at these encounters in the Gospels that people have with the risen Jesus and how it changes our lives and how we are to now live in light of the resurrection, which brings us to today's passage. Did you notice the very first words out of the angel's mouth to the women at the empty tomb? It's in verse 5. The women show up, and the first thing the angel says in verse 5 is, do not be afraid. What does a resurrection mean for your life? It means that you do not have to be afraid. You say, well, is is that really what it means? Okay. Look at the first words out of Jesus' mouth to those same women at that same empty tomb. Verse 10, do not be afraid. If you're wondering, does the resurrection have any relevance to your life? Friends, it has all sorts of relevance to your life. It is the antidote to your fear. You know, we come, it's a room of a lot of different people in this room. This is what I love about church, actually is it puts you in a room with people you're probably not rubbing shoulders with the rest of your week. 
people who don't live where you live, people who don't look like you look, people who don't work where you work, people who don't talk like you talk, people who didn't go to the same school or have the same education as you, people of all sorts of different socioeconomic backgrounds. You know, this is a room of varied people, very different people, but there is one thing that we have in common, and it is fear. We are all afraid, and we have so many fears. Fears about our health, fears about our finances, fears about our family, or our future, or our career, or our city. We are fearful people, and it is not just something that we live with, but if you know yourself at all, you know that it actually sits at the control center of your life, and it dictates your thoughts, your actions, and your decisions. Something really interesting about the Bible is, you know what the most repeated command in the Bible is over and over again? The most repeated command is do not be afraid. God knows that we are fear-filled people. Now, what if you could leave this room today less afraid? What if you could begin to experience real victory, real healing in your fears? The resurrection says that you can. Uh, I was reading this week about all the different therapies that experts recommend to kind of deal with our fears. There's a lot of therapies. There's uh, mindfulness therapies. There's meditation therapies. There are breathing therapies. One of the most popular therapies that experts use is called exposure therapy. They use this for people who have uh, very kind of extreme fears, like if you have a fear of spiders, and an extreme fear of spiders, what happens is, is when you see a spider, your amygdala, which is the part of your brain where scientists think that fear kind of originates from, your, your, your amygdala starts going crazy, all right? There's like a party in your amygdala, and, and it takes over your prefrontal cortex, which is the part of your brain that is able to think rationally. It's the part of your brain that's able to say, that tiny little spider can't hurt me. Now, I'm going to stop talking about amygdalas and prefrontal cortexes because I went to seminary, and that's about all that I know, what I just told you. That's about it. Okay, some of you in this room know a lot more than me. But here's, what, here's kind of the idea, uh, is you expose someone, this exposure therapy, to their fear gradually and over time. You, you put them in a room, and you have them look at pictures of spiders, or you put a spider in a cage across the room, and over time you kind of move it closer and closer and closer until... They don't have this reaction anymore. There are so many therapies. You didn't come here to learn about exposure therapy this morning. You came here to learn about Jesus. But look, here's the deal. Uh, there, are, there are so many therapies. What we're going to see this morning is that what this text is actually teaching us, what the Bible is actually teaching us, is that the starting point of dealing with fear is not therapy, but it is theology. What is theology? Theology is a right understanding of God. At its very root, all of our fear flows out of a wrong understanding of God. Do you know where the first place that fear shows up in the Bible? It's in Genesis chapter 3. And Adam looks at God and he says, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid. Now, why were Adam and Eve afraid? They were afraid because they disobeyed. But why did they disobey? 
They disobeyed because they wrongly thought that God was holding out on them. So if you want to deal with your fear, you might need therapy. But the starting point is theology. You need a right understanding of God, and the resurrection gives it to us. It tells us, we're going to look at three things this morning that the resurrection tells us about God. Three attributes, three character traits, three truths about God. And to the degree that you actually really believe these things, you begin to experience real freedom and healing in your fear. So what are these things? Here's the first. God is always with you. God is always with you. In verse 20, we'll start at the very end this morning. In verse 20, some of you thought, wait a minute, I I thought this was going to be a passage about mission and the Great Commission. Friends, Jesus is explaining in these verses the meaning of the resurrection. We are going to get to mission, actually, in a couple weeks. The resurrection sends you out into this world to love it and to serve it like God loves it and has served it. But this morning we're looking at fear because at the very end of verse 20, Jesus says, I'm with you always. Now, literally, in the Greek, he says, I am with you all the days. All the days, not most days. Not on your good days. Not on the days where you feel spiritually fit or like you have prayed enough, but all the days. That means every second of every day. That means even on the days where you feel full of fear and not full of faith. This is Jesus' promise to you. What's really interesting about Matthew's gospel is that this promise is like a bookend to Matthew's gospel. It shows up in chapter 1 where it says that you will call him Jesus, uh, you will call him Emmanuel, you'll call Jesus Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then here we have Jesus in the very last verse of the Bible saying, I am with you always. You know why Jesus can make this promise to you? Because of the resurrection. Muhammad cannot make this promise to you. Buddha cannot make this promise to you. The founder of no other religion can make this promise to you. They are dead. You can know their teaching, but you cannot know their presence. But see, Christianity offers you something entirely different. It offers you a God who is alive, who is personal, a God that you can know, a God who says, I am with you always. Now, I said we're talking about theology today, so I'm going to give you some big words, okay? Theologians call this the omnipresence of God. We sang about it earlier in the service. Hallelujah. I am not alone. We read about it earlier in the service in our words of assurance from Isaiah, where God says, do not fear. Why? For I am with you. And as you, if you've ever read the Psalms, you know what you find? You find people who over and over and over again are constantly quieting their fears with this truth that God is omnipresent. Psalm 46.1, you are our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Listen to this. Therefore, says the psalmist, I will not fear. Psalm 137, 
Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, you are there. If I settle on the far side of the sea, you are there. Your right hand will guide me. God is always with you. I have a good friend, one of my closest friends, actually. And over the last couple years, his life has imploded. He, He lost his marriage. He lost his job. He is starting over at a time in life where it is not easy to start over. And some of you are in that place right now. He was telling me about one night where he was so broken and so desperate that he went into his bathroom and he was just sitting on the floor all by himself and he looked out the window into the night sky and he saw the moon and the stars and he just kind of felt the vastness of the universe and in that moment he cried out and this is what he cried out. He said, God, are you out there? And he said in that moment he heard a voice. It wasn't an audible voice but it was the clearest thing he'd ever heard and the response was this. I am not out there. I am right in here. What if you believe that? What if you believe that God was always with you? Think about what this would do to your fears. Some of you in this room, you are single. And you're so afraid of being alone. And Jesus says you are never alone. No matter what your marital status ends up being. Some of you are married and you're in a hard marriage and you're realizing that you're never going to have the intimacy that you long for and you are afraid of being alone and Jesus says, you are not alone. I'm with you always. Some of you feel like no one in the world understands you. No one gets you. You're afraid you're never going to find the community and the friendship that you crave. And Jesus says, you are not alone. I am with you always. Now that's the first thing the resurrection tells us about God. Here's the second. God is not just always with you, but God is always for you. God is always for you. Uh, Jesus says in verse verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, that's a pretty astonishing claim. Jesus does not say most authority. He doesn't say some authority. He says all authority has been given to me. If you've ever wondered, does, does Jesus ever claim to be God? Well, the answer is literally on every page of the Gospels. But right here you have a very obvious one. And the question is, how can Jesus make a claim like this? How can Jesus say all authority belongs to me? You know what the answer is? It's because of the resurrection he can say that. Uh, In Ephesians 1, Paul says this. He says, when God raised Jesus up from the dead, he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. When Jesus was raised, he was seated at the right hand. Now that seems like just kind of a throwaway phrase. It's not. You might have noticed that 
Uh, Almost every other week when we confess our faith together as a church, we use the Apostles' Creed. And that little phrase shows up in there. It says that on the third day, he rose again and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Now, what does it mean that Jesus is at the right hand? Well, to sit at the right hand is not just saying Jesus just, you know, went up into heaven. No, to sit at the right hand of the king was the place of rule. It was the place of power. It was the person who was executed the will of the king. And so when Ephesians says that Jesus is at the right hand, and when Jesus says all authority has been given to me, he is saying because of the resurrection, because of the resurrection, I'm in charge of everything that happens in history and in your life. This is Jesus' way of saying, I am the CEO of the universe. Nothing happens apart from my sovereign will. I'm in total, absolute control. Now, theologians call this the omnipotence of God. See, if you just have the omnipresence of God, it's not enough to handle your fears. I mean, it's comforting to, to think that God is with you always, right? That's comforting. But we need more than that. We need to know that God isn't just always with us, but that God is actually in control. We need omnipotence. But here's the thing. Even that is not enough to settle your fears. Some of you hear me say that God is in total control, and it's actually very unsettling for you. Because hard things, traumatic things, violent things, terribly sad things have happened in your life. And so you look at the world and you think, does God even know what he's doing? It is very possible, it is very possible to believe in the omnipotence of God in such a way that it makes you more afraid and not less afraid. And so here's the deal. We need a God who is not just over us, not just a God who's omnipotent and all-powerful, not just a God who's with us, But we need a God who is for us. We need a God who's actually orchestrating all things together for our good. Here's the last big word of the day for you. Theologians call this the providence of God. The providence of God. We need a God who is for us and working all things for our good. And let me give you a case study in this. In Acts chapter 7, we're told the story about a man named Stephen. And Stephen was one of the leaders in the early church. He was also the first Christian martyr. In Acts chapter 7, we read this story where Stephen is is, uh, tried and then executed. He's stoned to death because of his faith in Jesus. But what's so interesting about this passage, and as you read Stephen's story, is that he displays incredible calm throughout the whole thing. He is fearless. I mean, even while they're stoning him, he is praying for them. And, you know, think about that. I mean, if there's, ever a mo- some of, if there's ever a moment to be afraid, like this is one of them. Like, I think we'd all kind of go, oh, that seems fair, okay? If there's ever a moment to be afraid, that is one of them. And he wasn't. And the question is, why? Well, listen to what verse 55 of Acts 7 says. It says that as they threw the stones, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God, and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. 
Look, Stephen said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. You know why he wasn't afraid? Because he got a vision of Jesus at the right hand of the Father. He got a vision of Jesus in total control of everything. He understood that the one who loved him enough to die for him was now determining everything that happened in his life. When I was doing college ministry at Berkeley for 11 years back in the day, uh, I had a a friend who was doing the same thing at another school. And uh, he was was in his mid-30s, very young, married, three little kids, and one day he went out into his neighborhood on a bike ride with his three little kids. And he took what looked like a seemingly harmless fall. And what looked harmless turned out to be a traumatic brain injury. He went into a coma for four weeks and he died. Never woke up. A young widow, three little kids, When he was in the coma, uh, another friend of ours went to visit him, and when he walked into his hospital room, he saw that his Bible was sitting on his bedside table. His wife had left it there, and he opened it up, and on the inside cover of the Bible, there was taped a piece of paper, and on that piece of paper was a quote, and the quote was from the Heidelberg Catechism, which we actually used earlier this morning when we confessed our faith together, I belong body and soul and life and death to Jesus Christ. It was a quote from that same thing, and the the quote was on the providence of God. And the quote was this. Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity, and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us, not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. This means that we can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, and for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing will separate us from his love. Three days before his accident, he preached his very last sermon. To students. You know what the sermon was on? The providence of God. And in that sermon, he said this. He said, a loving God is in control even when bad things happen. See, and if you know that, if you know that the one who loved you enough to die for you is in control of everything that happens in your life, you will be able to handle anything in life. If you know that God is for you, if you cling not just to his omnipotence and not just to his omnipresence, but to his providence, then no matter what life brings your way, no matter how hard it gets, it does not mean that you will not cry. Please do not hear me saying that. There will be tears in this world. It does not mean that you will not cry. But it means that you can have an inner poise and an inner peace and an inner rest because the person 
who is in control of the universe is the one who loved you enough to die for you. It means that although you may not know why God is allowing certain things to happen in your life, you can know why it is not. It is not because he is against you. It is not because he has abandoned you. It's not because he's angry at you. It's not because he has turned his back on you. It is not because your life is a series of unfortunate events. No, God is for you. He is always for you. And he is in control of all things. And you see, I mean, just think about that this morning. How much less afraid would you be right now if you believe that? If you really believe that God was for you. Here's the third and final thing. God is always with you. God is always for you. Finally, the resurrection tells us that God is going to make all things right in the end. Uh, Look at the very last words of Jesus in this passage. He says, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. To the very end of the age. Now that's kind of a, that's kind of a strange phrase. Uh, it shows up two other times in Matthew's gospel. In chapter 13, verse 39, and chapter 24, verse 3. And in both cases, Jesus is the one who's using the phrase. And in both cases, he is using that phrase to talk about his second coming. See, he has come once, but the Christian hope is that he is going to come again. When Jesus uses this phrase to the very end of the age, he is talking about his future return when he is going to make everything that is wrong in the world, everything that is broken in the world, all of the sin and all of the injustice, and he is going to take everything that is wrong and he is going to make it right. Amen. Listen, the notion of God's providence, the promise that he is going to work all things together for our good, God does not promise that he's going to do that in your life next year. Some of you have been through really hard things. And you're saying, well, when am I going to see it? When's it going to happen? Friends, God does not promise that he's going to do it next year, and he doesn't promise that he's going to do it in 10 years, and he doesn't even promise that he's going to do it in your lifetime. What he promises is that he is going to do it at the very end when he returns. And all of the suffering and all of the sorrow gets swallowed up forever and ever and ever. And you might be thinking, well, that sounds wonderful, but it also sounds like a fairy tale. I mean, isn't that how all fairy tales end and they lived happily ever after? How do we know this isn't a fairy tale? How do we know this isn't just wishful thinking? How do we know that it's true? You know how we know it's true? The resurrection. Christian hope is not rooted in wishful thinking. It is rooted in something that has already happened. 1 Corinthians 15 says that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of our resurrection. That means, here's what that means, the just that because Christ was raised, it's not just that we're going to be raised, it's that the whole world is going to be raised. The whole creation is going to be raised. The Christian hope is not just one of resurrected people. It is one of a resurrected 
world, a world that is cleansed from all evil and all sadness and all sorrow. You see, one of the reasons that people do not get excited about the afterlife is that it feels like a downgrade from this life. You think, oh, fluffy angels floating around, playing harps and invisible souls, just kind of all moving around in this weird, fuzzy, clouded space. That's actually pretty lame, okay? That is pretty lame compared to this world where there is joy and laughter and beauty and wonder and Yosemite, which I've never been to. I've lived here for almost 20 years and stop judging me. I felt that. I felt that shame. Okay. I felt that shame. Listen, one of the reasons we don't get excited about an afterlife is because we think it's a downgrade for this one. But you know what the resurrection means? It means that you will laugh and dance and run and eat and drink and hug and be hugged and we will do it in a renewed world. The resurrection says that whatever is lost now will be found. Whatever is sick will be healed. Whatever is hurting will be made whole. And if we could get this, if we could get this deep down into our bones, it would do so much for our fear. Friends, if Jesus Christ was really raised from the dead, and Christianity would say, that is the question. Is it true or not? Did it happen or not? If it happened, it means nothing. If it, if it didn't happen, it means nothing. If it happened, it, it changes everything. It means that if Jesus really rose from the dead, if he really came out of the tomb and he was walking around, again, if he really had a healed body, then you know what? Everything is going to be all right. Whatever you are worried about today, whatever you are afraid of today, everything is going to be okay in the end. I mean, think about it. What is the worst thing that could happen to you in this life? The worst thing is you could die. And you will die. But you know what death does to a Christian? It, it ushers you into this glorious future. Do yourself a favor, go home today and Google Dr. Jonathan Evans' funeral video. Uh, Dr. Evans is a Christian, and he gave the eulogy at his mom's funeral. This was just a couple years ago. And in that eulogy, he talked about how he prayed and prayed and prayed that God would heal his mom. She'd been sick for a while. And he prayed that God would heal his mom, and God didn't. And he said it wasn't until after she died that he realized, and I'm going to quote him here, he said, I realized that there were only two answers to my prayers when I asked God to heal my mom. Either she was going to be healed or she was going to be healed. Either she was going to live or she was going to live. Either she was going to be with family or she was going to be with family. Either she was going to be well taken care of or she was going to be well taken care of. The resurrection means that if you were in Christ Jesus, there is one way that your life is going to end, and it is unimaginably well. You are going to be taken care of in this life 
and in the next. And you can know that God is orchestrating all things together for your good in this life, even the hard things that you don't understand until that moment. And if we really believe that, we would be much less afraid. We'd leave this room today less afraid than when we came in. I was talking to a friend this week, and he was telling me about a very close friend of his who several years ago, his heart stopped. And uh, his wife walked in and found him on the floor in their house, and he was totally unresponsive. And she you know, frantically started doing CPR on him until the paramedics could show up. And, and every doctor said he should not have lived. He should not have survived. And what he was telling my friend is he said, he said that he lives now not knowing when that might ever happen again. And my friend asked him this question. He said, how do you live not knowing if your next breath is your last Which, by the way, that is a question that we should all ask ourselves. We all live as though we are promised tomorrow. But that, friends, that is an illusion. How do you live not knowing if your next breath is your last? My friend asked him that question. This is what he said. He said, if I die tomorrow, I'll be with Jesus. And if not, he'll be with me. Do not be afraid, says Jesus, for I am always with you. I am always for you. And I will make all things right in the end. And that's actually what this table is about. Jesus is uniquely and mysteriously present at this table. He's with us. And this table reminds us that he loved us enough to die for us. He's for us. And it points us to the day when he will come again, friends, and we will eat and feast with him in a new world. A world that is the way that it was always meant to be. A world that every single person in this room and in this city longs for. And this table says, it is coming. And Jesus invites us to eat and drink today as a foretaste of it. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it, saying, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. The Apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for this table. We give you thanks that you are a God who is always with us, nearer than we even know, even when we don't feel it, even when we don't sense it, even when we don't want you around, you are there, and that you are for us, and that you are coming again and make all things new. God, we, we need to get these truths deep down into our heart 
so that we can trust you, so that we can live as people who are not driven by our fear, but who are at rest in Christ. Help us, help me, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.